0: Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. At the age of 14 years old, Jim Byron started working at the California-based Nixon Foundation as a marketing intern. This past November, at age 28, he was appointed president and CEO of the foundation. Mr. Byron joined Q&A to talk about the Nixon Foundation and its role in operating the Nixon Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California. He also spoke about his goals for the foundation, including getting more young people interested in the life and legacy of President Nixon. Our conversation will begin in just a moment.
1: These are some of the letters that President and Mrs. Nixon wrote to each other between 1938 and when they were married in 1940 that show their courtship. These are incredibly rare. They were just recently released by the Nixon Foundation in 2012. So this is a letter that was written by President Nixon to Mrs. Nixon. It's not dated, but uh, he writes to her dearest heart. He says, let's go for a long ride Sundays. Let's go to the mountains on weekends. Let's read books in front of fires. Most of all, let's really grow together and find the happiness we know is ours. My love to thee, dear heart, Dick. So what this letter really shows us is a romantic side of a young President Nixon that really wasn't public before these letters were released.
0: Jim Byron, that is video from C-SPAN from 2013, our First Lady series, when we first met you in an earlier role with the Nixon Foundation. On November 3rd, just one month ago today, as a matter of fact, the Foundation Board shows you at age 28 to be the new Head and the new CEO of the Nixon Foundation. Tell me about this new role, why you took it, and what your goals are.
1: Thanks, Susan, and uh, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, it's, it's a very exciting role, and I'm deeply honored uh, by the trust that the board of directors of the Nixon Foundation has placed in me. Uh, you know, we're a nonprofit. There's only 13 presidential foundations around the country. Uh, we're all about education. So we're all about encouraging and supporting scholarship, uh, sponsoring programs that engage the public with American civics and and history and uh, putting on special exhibits here at the Nixon Library. Uh, If I can use those tools, uh, our mission work, to deepen an understanding about Richard Nixon uh, and Mrs. Nixon and their times, uh, the times in which they served, particularly among millennials, uh, people my age, I'm only 28, uh, to, to you know, come to a fuller understanding about who uh, President Nixon was, then I, uh, I, I will have done, a, I think, a, a good job in this role. Uh, you know, a, a big part of that too is uh, continuing our very positive relationship uh, with our partners and friends at the National Archives uh, in Washington. We cooperate with the Nixon Library uh the archives the national archives controls the archives and uh and the foundation puts on uh, all sorts of educational programs and uh, we work together to to bring people here to the nixon library to deepen understanding and and uh and to encourage people to to come here and and study and learn and make up their own minds about who uh richard nixon was uh if i can uh, help to help the foundation to build up its presence in washington with uh, programming and fundraising support, that's a certainly a worthwhile goal. Uh, I want to institute a number of podcast series. Again, it's it's millennials that uh, that really are are a target audience in in the sense uh, if we can support scholarship and and uh, and, and under deepen an understanding of uh, of President Nixon through podcast series and other digital outlets, uh, that will be a big win. And then. Uh, you know, we, we are beginning a very successful series of conferences uh, on a number of, of uh, you know, key legacy uh, elements of, of the Nixon legacy. Um, and so uh, we'd want to program those out once every, uh, every, either every year or every other year to really build up awareness that there's uh, so much uh, to this fascinating a man and uh, and his legacy and the times in which he served. So, if I can get a fraction of that done over the next couple of years, uh, I think that that uh, that my goals will will have been fulfilled.
0: Uh, by my calculations, at age twenty eight, you were born one year uh, before Richard Nixon died. So, what inspired your interest in him?
1: You know, uh, I, I it, it didn't really start with an interest in in Richard Nixon, uh, so to speak. It, it started with uh, just an interest in American history. You know, I was, uh, I had a very close uh, relationship with my grandfather on on my mother's side, and he was a history buff. And he brought me into this world. Uh, We would, uh, you know, watch, uh, we'd watch news clips together and history programs together. We'd watch C-SPAN together. And uh, that was how I, I came to really have a passion for uh, history and, in particular, 20th century American history. I minored in it uh, as, as an undergrad in college, uh, and so, you know, when I was a, uh, I was a student, a high school student. I was looking for volunteer opportunities. Honestly, Susan, I was bored over the summer, and uh, this opportunity came up, much to my surprise. The folks at the Nixon Foundation said, "Okay, we'll give this kid a shot," and uh, so really, through osmosis, I began learning about the uh the nixon presidency and legacy and uh what a legacy it is so um you know that that's that's really how it got started and and then uh, i would i continued to volunteer uh, my time when when i was in uh, in high school over the summers and i learned a lot read every conceivable book that you could about uh I read President Nixon's memoirs, several of his books. I read about uh, you know, Dean Kotlowski on Nixon's civil rights, Evan Thomas uh, being Nixon, uh, books on Watergate. I mean, it, it is just, where do you even start with Richard Nixon? It, he is so endlessly and absolutely fascinating. So um, the, the more and more that I could soak in uh, was uh, really served to, to, to benefit my understanding. and. That's how it. Uh, that's how it started. So then I learned about nonprofits. I uh, learned about fundraising. Learned about programming. And uh, I had some very close uh, mentors along the way that uh, helped me out every step of the way. And so uh, when Hugh Hewitt took over as president of the foundation back in the July of 2019, he asked me to be his number two and essentially to run the staff, run all operations at the library and, uh, and I gladly accepted. And uh, so he was made a decision to go back onto the board and recommended that I succeed him. And much to my luck, the uh, board of directors agreed. So that's that's really how it all turned out.
0: Yeah, the press release uh, last month on your announcement said that that first stint that you took at the library as a, as a youngster, you were age 14. So wow. how many of your contemporaries were interested in presidential politics and particularly Nixon history uh, as you were at that age?
1: Very few. <laughs> <laughs> Very few. But uh, yeah, it's something that, that uh, I think set me apart. I've always been an old soul uh, but it's it's done well for me.
0: When along this path now, 14 years, did you decide that you wanted to make presidential history, museum management, uh, uh, public history a career?
1: Actually, rather recently, uh, you know, particularly with the, the Nixon Foundation uh, being on what I the ascent that, that I believe that it is, uh, you know, we. There's just such an interest in in Richard Nixon uh, today that I hope that we'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about. Um, You know, he he is endlessly fascinating. There are 17 books by my count that are in the works right now about uh, him, his life, his his times, and his legacy. And I thought, you know, if I can help to deepen the understanding of this crucial man who was so crucial to a 50-year period, in, in American and world history. Um, I will have been doing my community a service, I will have been doing my friends a service, uh, doing the board a service, and really doing, I think, American history a service. So that's uh, what keeps me going every day.
0: We'll have uh, a more time to talk about some of the points you raised, but you are talking sure. to us from the campus of the Nixon Library and Museum, which is your Belinda, California. Does the foundation own the campus?
1: We do, we own uh, all nine acres.
0: And where, how far is it from Whittier, California, where Richard Nixon was born?
1: It's only about 15 miles. Uh, he was actually Susan born here in Yorba Linda. Uh, he was born in a uh, small home that his father built out of a kit, and it's right here on the property at the Nixon Library, and it's now open to visitors. So, actually, about six million visitors have walked through that home <laughs> over the last 30 years. So, uh, where
0: where does Whittier play a role in his, his life story?
1: Well, of course, the family moved to Whittier when he was nine. And so uh, the, the, the Yorba Linda property was a citrus ranch and the crops have been failing. Uh, Frank Nixon, his father, Anna Nixon, his mother, made the decision to take their four young boys to Whittier uh, where their better prospects lay for, uh, for a better life. And so they opened up Nixon's market uh, out of a converted old church. And uh, when Richard Nixon was 14, uh, he would get up at four in the morning every day and he'd take the family car to downtown Los Angeles, and he'd go to the uh, vegetable and fruit markets, and he'd pick the, the freshest and ripest fruits, and he'd get back into the car, drive him back to Nixon's market, stock the uh, wares in, in the store, and then he'd go to school. Uh, so Whittier really, I think, is foundational to understanding uh, Richard Nixon as a young boy, uh, and, and then as a young man. Of course, uh, after he, went to Whittier College and then Duke Law School, he returned to Whittierts where he met his wife. Uh, Patricia Ryan. they met at a play uh, where they were actually cast opposite each other and he famously said to her on that opening night, I'm going to marry you someday." Uh, and they did two, two years later. Uh, his first law office was there in Whittiers in a building that still stands uh, here and, and guests can can tour through it. Um, so there's Whittier factors very figures very prominently in the Nixon story.
0: President Nixon was alive for 20 years after his resignation, and a good deal of the latter years were involved in the planning of the library. He was at its dedication in 1990. We have a a brief clip of some of his remarks. I want to show the audience.
2: I hope all of you will have an opportunity to take a tour of the library. And uh, I hope that you will, when you see there, you will share some of the things that My colleagues, the former presidents and President Bush, have referred to. What you will see, among other things, is a personal life. The influence of a strong family, of inspirational ministers, of great teachers. You will see a political life, running for Congress, running for the Senate, running for governor, running for president, three times, won some, lost some, all interesting. And you will see also the life of a great nation, 77 years old, a period in which we had unprecedented progress for the United States. And you will see great leaders, leaders who changed the world, who helped to make the world what we have today. Seeing those things, those things, will certainly be interesting. Let me remind you that when you go through this library, I hope you will remember that while the past is interesting, it is important only insofar as it points the way to a better future.
0: What resonates with you about those remarks?
1: He said it best, Susan. Uh, That's exactly the mission of the Nixon Foundation. Uh, And and I hope that we are living up to President Nixon's call to uh, have the library and his foundation be an active place. Of study, of debate, of analysis, uh, of, of key—one of our key educational outlets—that uh, the that presidential libraries are in the country. You know what's what's uh, really special, I think, about the Nixon Library is uh, that it contains, as he said, his whole life. He was born on this property, and he and Mrs. Nixon are buried on this property. There's a whole life. Uh, that that now physically is only separated by about 50 feet. But you think of they traveled all over the world together in pursuit of of American interests uh, over a period of 50 years. And you can come here to the library and see it all. And uh, not only do visitors and the everyday public come to visit, but the library is one of the top destinations uh, as a forum for policymakers to come and and set their uh, or proclaim their agendas. Uh, Just within the last two years, we've hosted uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for a major address on U.S.-China relations. Of course, President Nixon very famously was the first president to go to China in 1972. Uh, We hosted the EPA uh, EPA Director Andrew Wheeler for a speech on uh, the EPA today. Of course, Richard Nixon created the EPA, rather famously, uh, in in 1970. Um, Just yesterday, uh, we had Coming in virtually for the first uh, for the inaugural Nixon National Cancer Conference, we had NCI Director Ned Sharpless, President Biden's NCI Director, spoke to about 200 people in our East Room. So the library, you know, not only tells the Nixon story, but serves as a, a very active forum today for uh, for policymaking.
0: You mentioned that. President Nixon went to Whittier College. You're a graduate of Chapman University. Chapman seems to have a lot of connections with the Nixon Library. The president serves on the foundation board. Hugh Hewitt, whom you mentioned, teaches or has taught law there. You're an alumnus. Uh, what is the connection between Chapman? Tell me about it, first of all. And what's the connection between the two institutions?
1: Well, that's a great question, Susan. Uh, you know, Chapman is uh, has, has a certain number of benefits. Uh, that that we enjoy uh, together with with the uh, uh, you know in partnership. Uh, they're only about ten miles away from the library. Uh, we've worked with Chapman to build a Presidential Studies uh, Center with uh, two historians uh, that study not only Richard Nixon but uh, really 20th century American politics and the presidency. Uh, So if we can use the vast Nixon archives, there's 47 million uh, pages of documents, over 300,000 photographs, 2 million feet of film. If we can open these documents to students through the Presidential Studies Center at Chapman University, we will be fulfilling our educational mission and allowing those students a hands-on educational experience to come here and really learn uh, so many different aspects of American history, and, uh, and, and international politics. Um, you know, as you said, Dr. Strupa is on the board, uh, on, on our board. Hugh Hewitt is a member of the law school faculty at Chapman, um, George Arduis, Ambassador Arduis, is a longtime supporter of, uh, of, of both Chapman and the Nixon Library and his wife, Julia and his daughter, Lisa, uh, and, and his foundation uh, are, are still enormously supportive. So. You know, there, there's just a there's a great educational relationship between the two institutions that, frankly, we both benefit from.
0: We've talked about Hugh Hewitt a few times already. He was the first CEO of the foundation, came back, as you mentioned, for a second stint uh, just recently as your immediate predecessor. We have a clip from an interview with him uh, talking about his association with Richard Nixon.
3: And they were also- How much time have you spend around Richard Nixon? Uh, A lot for two years, in 1978 to 1980, and then quite a lot from uh, 88, 89, and 90 when the library was being built. What did you do with the library? Uh, I was the executive director overseeing its construction in Yorba Linda, California, when he was back in New Jersey, um, organizing its contents. I was overseeing its construction, flying back and forth. (coughs) And in San Clemente, I was one of his writing staff. What did that cost? Uh, Nixon Library was $22 million, privately raised. Where did the money come from? Um... There was not one gift larger than $2 million. I believe uh, uh, Bob Aplinop gave $2 million, but I'd have to check my facts. It was a lot of... He's the aerosol man? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, very well. Very good memory. (laughs) And uh, Bill Simon, the former secretary of the Treasury, was the chairman of the foundation that raised it. Most of it was raised before I got there. Why Uh, did you do that? uh, Because the president had been very good to me. President Nixon had been very good to me. Um, He was the best boss I ever had. He would spend an endless amount of time answering questions. I wasn't a very good writer when I started. I was a very good writer when I finished. Uh, Ray Price was the chief of the writing staff. There were three of us, Todd Lindbergh, myself, Ray, and the president who wrote everything out in longhand. Great editor. He taught me how to read. He taught me what to read. He invested a lot of time in young people.
0: Many people watching will know uh, Hugh Hewitt through his longtime radio talk show. You knew him in a a different capacity, still know him that way. Uh, He talked about President Nixon mentoring him. What did the Hugh Hewitt relationship do for you?
1: Much of the same that he just talked about uh, with regard to President Nixon. Uh, Hugh is one of my closest friends and mentors. Uh, He taught me a lot about not only nonprofit management, um, but uh, uh, media and uh, communications, events, Um, How to get things done. Hugh has an amazing ability to get things done and to think strategically. And, uh, you know, if if I, I, again, like I said earlier, I'm able to absorb these things through mentors uh, through osmosis, I believe. (laughs) And uh, in, in the case of Hugh, that's certainly true
0: what um, he is returning to the, the board, as you mentioned, he was if you look on the website, he was a very frequent moderator of events. Will he continue in that role? Or are you going to be doing more of that?
1: Uh, we will. Well, as he said, you know, Jim, you're the boss now. Uh, but he, he has said that he will do anything to support us uh, and support the success of the foundation. Believe me, I'm going to take advantage of it.
0: Tell me about that board, 24 members who's on it.
1: Uh, our chairman, uh, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, uh, really another of my mentors, an inspirational man, a brilliant mind, uh, got a start at HEW in uh, the late 1960s, and then was brought over to the White House to the Domestic Council in 1970. Ended up running healthcare policy in the Nixon administration, played a major role in yesterday's uh, Nixon National Cancer Conference, and really plays a role in, in setting the strategic direction of the foundation. Um, really, a, a, just just a, an amazing individual. Um, so yeah, we have we have twenty four members uh, of the board. Four Nixon family members serve on the board. Uh, President Nixon's two daughters, Tricia Nixon Cox and Julie Nixon Eisenhower, Tricia's son Christopher Nixon Cox, and Julie's youngest daughter Melanie Eisenhower, are both on the board as well. Uh, former California Governor Pete Wilson is on the board. Everett Alvarez, the longest. Uh, held prisoner of war in Vietnam, if you can believe it, Everett was held for eight and a half years in uh, in the so-called Hanoi Hilton. Absolutely inspirational figure who I'm privileged to call a friend, and uh, Everett is is on our our board as well. Uh, it's it's a really a, a group of dedicated individuals who are passionate about education, his historic edu- uh, American history education, and civic education, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, privileged to work with all of them.
0: We have a bit of video of Julie Nixon Eisenhower talking about her father at a foundation event. Um, I want to show that just to give you an opportunity to talk about how the Nixon family members are involved in the work of the foundation. If my father were with us tonight, he would say to all of you, thank you. Thank you, men and women of the Nixon administration for serving in the most challenging times imaginable, and for doing a job superbly and brilliantly, so many achievements in five and a half years. And he would say thank you to the bigger Nixon family, the friends, and supporter who have come here tonight to celebrate. Sometimes I'm asked what it was like for my family to defend my father during the embattled moments in the White House, And my response is simple. He was the best father in the world. He loved this country and he made us proud. So how does the family get involved in addition to sitting
1: on the board? Before I answer that, I just want to, that was a great clip. That was at the uh, 2013 centennial uh, birthday dinner at the Mayflower uh, Hotel in Washington, which I was at. And I think Julie brought down the house. She was the last one to speak. And we just, it was, it was great to go out on that note. Um, The family uh, is involved uh, largely uh, by giving advice. And uh, I'm in touch with uh, Tricia and Julie uh, regularly, and they, they are close confidants. And uh, I mean, few people are, are able to give better advice because they were there, and not only were they there throughout the entirety of course of the Nixon presidency, but you know this is this is uh, this is their father and, and their mother uh, who who really uh, play these these pivotal roles in American history. Um, what I really admire about well, one of the many things that I admire about Tricia and Julie is that uh, they both recognize the need to uh, get new generations involved, and both were very supportive of me uh, in this role, and I. Really love that uh, Christopher and Melanie are both uh, involved with us on the board. Again, representative of that next generation.
0: How involved in the details of the exhibits and also the kinds of speakers that you book are the board? Do they, uh, is the board do, does it have a yay or nay function of, as to the content uh, of the library and the direction that you take from an editorial historical perspective?
1: The, the, the board really empowers the CEO. And uh, of course, I, I uh, you know, consult widely with uh, the board as advisors, but uh, you know, really it's, it's the CEO that sets the direction.
0: For the first 17 years, the Nixon Library declined to be part of the National Archives system. Uh, the um, I guess I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit of the history of why ultimately the decision was made to join the NARA, as it's called, National Archives and Records Administration.
1: Sure. Uh, at the time, we felt that, and again, this was this predates me, but uh, that, that it was important that the Nixon legacy be assessed by, again, the next generation, future scholars, uh, in the fairest, most uh, accurate way possible. And to do that, uh, it was decided that the files needed to come to your Linda, like those 47 million pieces of paper, uh, two million feet of film, over 300,000 photographs from every aspect of Richard Nixon's life and career. They were held uh, after the uh, president's resignation from, as you said, 74 till about 2004. Uh, they were held in, in, in College Park, Maryland. And uh, the National Archives was making progress, but you know, it was decided that, that they really belonged in Yorba Linda. We had the library in Yorba Linda, we had the birthplace in Yorba Linda, President and Mrs. Nixon were buried in Yorba Linda, and so for scholars uh, and those interested in American history, students uh, writing term papers, in order to really understand the entirety of his life and career, uh, it was felt that the papers and the archival materials needed to be here in Yorba Linda, and to do that, we needed a new relationship with the National Archives.
0: So nothing is in College Park anymore. Everything is in Yorba Linda.
1: Physical tapes uh, are, are still held in cold storage in College Park, but uh, all of the um, copies for that are available for research are here in your Belinda. So other than those physical tapes, yes, everything else uh, is now in your Belinda.
0: And who is the owner of all the Nixon-related materials?
1: It's a very complicated answer. <laughs> um, it, it depends on the collection. Uh, so the, the Nixon presidency, uh, obviously, as a, as a result of uh, one of the many uh, legacies of Watergate, the Nixon uh, files from the White House uh, were essentially seized by the U.S. government. That was a departure from the practice of the past. John F. Kennedy's files, Lyndon B. Johnson's files, the Eisenhower administration files, they were all determined to be uh, the personal property of the president. That all changed after Watergate. So the files uh, that that from the Nixon presidency, from the White House, sixty-nine, January sixty-nine to August of seventy-four, those are entirely uh, under the custody of the National Archives, uh, the, the United States government. The prior to the Nixon presidency and after the Nixon presidency, so nineteen thirteen to nineteen sixty-nine and nineteen seventy-four to nineteen ninety-four, uh, it really depends on the collection. Uh, For example, the Nixon Foundation uh, is the sole owner of the post-presidency papers, 74 to 94. Uh, The vice presidential papers, it's a mix. Some of them, President Mrs. Nixon deeded to the U.S. government uh, very famously. And in other cases, the early life material is is owned by the Foundation. Some of it is still owned by the Nixon family. It, It really depends on the collection. So if there is a researcher out there that's interested in a particular collection and reviewing a particular collection, get in touch with us at the Nixon Foundation and we can help you out.
0: So when uh, NARA comes on board, you also get federal government archivists that, uh, that work with the collection. Uh, so do they have purview over all of them, no matter who, it's, who it belongs to, to do the research? Or do you have, does the foundation have its own set of archivists that looks through the family material?
1: It, uh, it, it just depends upon the collection. So again, for all of the publicly owned materials, those are squarely and NARA's purview. Uh, for the privately owned collections, we uh, the, the the foundation really administers those, uh, and and will consider requests uh, to to uh, to research them on a case by case basis.
0: Do you ever turn down requests?
1: We do, uh, depending upon what what the request is. Um, but uh, you know, we, we really try to work with, with historians uh, and, and people that are coming in. We want to get the full story out. We want to get books uh, written and movies made and podcasts done. Uh, you know, if, if, we're, if we turn down a request, we're gonna work with the, generally, we're gonna work with the person who made the request to try to make it work. Uh, you know, we, we are very supportive of scholarship. And uh, we do fund scholars uh, who come out here to your Belinda to research uh, in, in the National Archives research room or through the foundation collections. You know, like I said, research and support for scholarship is a major element of our mission.
0: So one of the goals of this conversation is so that people understand how these foundations and presidential libraries work because there is public money and public staff involved in it. So overall, how large is the staff, uh, the foundation staff plus the NARA staff that works there?
1: So on the foundation side, we have about 60, and a number of those are part-time. Uh, all of that, all of the foundation staff are uh, privately funded, and that's through fundraising and, and through the foundation's endowment. They're funded through our operating accounts. Uh, on the National Archives side, I believe there are staff of about 20 here in Yorba Linda. Uh, they have a director, Mike Elsey, who's a wonderful guy who uh, it, it really is committed to uh, a deeper understanding uh, and using his uh, the powers of his agency that he can to uh, to help to get the nixon story out um and we work together on that so uh, the way that the library complex itself uh is split up for lack of a better term is that certain portions are controlled by the foundation certain portions are controlled by nara and this will vary depending upon the uh the presidential library in question no two presidential libraries are alike so, uh, you know, we split costs, um, we split uh, labor. Uh, it really all depends upon the function in question, but we, uh, we, we really do have, a, uh, I think, a very, a very positive and a very healthy relationship from the archivist, David Ferriero, all the way on down.
0: What is the uh, annual budget of the, of the entire operation and how much of that comes from federal funds?
1: So the foundation's uh, operating budget is about $10 million, and again, all that is, uh, is, is private. Um, the, you, you'd have to check with the National Archives to see how much of the total uh, you know, National Archives appropriations are given uh, to, to the Nixon uh, Library itself. But I'll tell you that uh, when it comes to the split costs that I mentioned earlier, Uh, the national archives does control more square footage, uh, in the library right now. And so they do bear a larger burden of the electrical and maintenance costs. And and those are public funds, but, uh, the foundation recently raised 25 million to uh, renovate, completely renovate and overhaul the Nixon library and museum. We opened that about five years ago, wonderful guy. in, in a business titan named Fred Malik, uh, who was a mentor of mine, uh, raised the $25 million to, uh, to redo that library. So that was all privately raised. And then the foundation donated the uh, completed uh, library and, and museum after the renovation to the U.S. government.
0: So uh, your, your portion of it uh, is private donations, private solicited donations, also memberships. People can belong. Uh, you also yes. rent the facilities out. So what happened during COVID? Uh, you, you weren't getting admissions to the library. You couldn't rent the facilities out. So how did you survive the last almost two years?
1: COVID was, was tough. I mean, like institutions across the country, particularly museum institutions across the country, COVID was, uh, it, it changed everything. Um, but we took advantage of of the opportunities that we could offer uh, as a as a closed facility. Again, like you said, Susan, we had no income coming in. Our endowment was a, a disaster. Uh, the we had no revenue from from private event sales. We had no admissions. Uh, membership was about our only revenue stream, and even that took a hit. So. You know, we, we, we took advantage of, of, of what we could, and that was our position in the community and the fact that we could do good things for for good people uh, and and try to, uh, as, as Mrs. Nixon did as, as First Lady, try to alleviate uh, some of the suffering and to encourage volunteerism. So we uh, launched what we call our Conquering COVID Campaign, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, that included more than 40 blood drives with the American Red Cross and other blood banks here in Southern California. We donated, uh, you know, we, we use the East Room uh, at, at the Nixon Library. We have a full scale replica of the East Room in the White House, which is just beautiful. And, and, and we do foundation events in there and is one of the uh, spaces that we rent out as well. Um, we we uh, brought in beds that, that folks would uh, lay in, and, and, and blood was taken, and that would go to the blood banks. Because I've, as you recall, very early in the COVID pandemic, there was a shortage of blood. So again, what what we considered, what can we do to help? Uh, we acquired a million masks uh, from a very generous businessman in, in New York City, and we donated 700,000 of those masks to uh, small businesses in the community, to schools, uh, and, and to try to uh, you know encourage economic activity there again to try to get kids back in school and to keep people safe I mean that's really what it what it came down to um, we we had four food drives we partnered with local uh, centers of worship in our community and uh, people came through and and, uh, and and were able to pick up food to to feed their families so you know even though we were closed we um, we we really made the best out of it and and we we benefit benefited a heck of a lot of people.
0: The challenge that you as a public historian and all museums have is operating in the digital age when audiences are much more accustomed to fast-paced digital events, often in their own homes. So how are you, you've talked a a number of times about the challenge of, uh, of reaching millennials. How are you approaching that? How do you get people through the door in the digital age?
1: Social media that is the uh, that is the key right now social media and podcasts i mean taking advantage of the opportunities that are out there uh, we have a a first-rate uh communications and and uh, department that you know looks at, at every conceivable opportunity um for example uh, as i mentioned earlier yesterday and the day prior we hosted the inaugural nixon national cancer conference we had three nobel laureates that came in uh, to, to participate. We had several former directors of the National Cancer Institute. We had the current director of the National Cancer Institute. And so as we were interacting with these scientists and doctors and clinicians that were coming in from, from all over the country, uh, we considered in advance, how do we project that out, right? So um, our newest uh, special exhibit, which we just opened uh, two days ago, is called A Commitment to Hope, that Richard Nixon and the National Cancer Act. In order to... Uh, get, get that exhibit out uh, in, into the public eye and to, and to raise awareness about that exhibit. We worked with a number of these doctors and, and, uh, and Nobel laureates to put them on tours of the exhibit. When they're in there, we ask for their thoughts. What do you think about this? Or, uh, you know, what's the, what's the, uh, what are the practical implications of, of the National Cancer Act today? And then we were able to build those into Instagram packages uh, Facebook Live videos, uh, tweet those out, and, and, uh, and, and through LinkedIn. I mean, LinkedIn has an amazing algorithm for the business and, and finance community. Um, so it's really taking advantage of every opportunity that we can and touching those demographics, but particularly that under-45 demographic. And so you know, social media really is key. And then I also mentioned podcasts. Uh, like I said, we, are, we have a couple of podcasts that we're working on right now that largely key off of uh key 50th anniversaries of the nixon administration yeah that's that's really what we are uh, celebrating and commemorating right now we are in uh, about to go into year four of what we're loosely calling the 50s but over the last several years we've commemorated uh the 50th anniversary of the nixon doctrine the uh 50th anniversary of the moon landing 50th anniversary of the EP, establishment of the epa and environmental uh, uh, the, the, you know, great environmental movement that, uh, that, that happened in, in 1970. And <clears throat> then we're obviously looking ahead to uh, the 50th anniversary of President Nixon's trip to China, trip to Russia, uh, the ending of the Vietnam War and the bringing home of the, of the uh, signing of the Paris Peace Accords, bringing home of the POWs, 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War and the 50th anniversary of Watergate. So we, as a foundation, build educational experiences and, and events conferences around these uh, types of programs uh or or i should say around these 50th anniversaries and make them into types of programs and then we push those out all across social media and we are connecting it is working Uh, we do hear from young people that say you know gosh I, i i didn't know about that or uh you know i i'd only heard that there was this thing called watergate you know i didn't know that." Uh, president Nixon was the first president to negotiate an arms control agreement with the Soviet Union. I mean, it, 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 there, there are real learnings that uh, that are being had. And again, that's in support of our mission.
0: So uh, it sounds as like getting people in the door of the museum as tourists is becoming less and less important and more important, getting the word out through digital means uh, and then having conferences and seminars. So the mix is changing over the years that you've been there.
1: I would say that they're equally important though, Susan, important in different ways. Uh, You know, what, in order to get visitors here to the library, we have to have products for them to come see. Some will come because they're history buffs like me, or they're interested in a potential particular aspect of American history or the Nixon legacy. Um, Still others will come for a particular special exhibit that we might be displaying, uh, whether it's the cancer exhibit, or we uh, had a very popular uh, Apollo 11 exhibit a few years ago. Our next exhibit opening next May is going to be all on the Cold War. and That one's going to be, we think, very popular. So, you know, visitors come for different reasons. So you have to have products that attract different visitors. Um, you know, prior to COVID, we were a top destination for uh, visiting Chinese nationals, again, because President Nixon is so highly regarded in China and among the Chinese people uh for his famous trip there historic groundbreaking trip there in 1972 uh you know so there it, it tourism and and drawing in tourists to the library still is is, uh, is is a very high priority um it's just as you alluded to it it it's it's the changing nature of that you know much more of that is now done online uh you have to have brand recognition in uh, among the groups that you are uh trying to get to come visit and then you have to ultimately have products that people want to see.
0: So uh, in the museum itself, uh, in the materials you say, the long, ongoing most popular is, of course, the Watergate exhibit. And uh, in the rebuild of the library, you readdressed it. I wanted to start that part of our conversation by listening to Richard Nixon himself briefly. And these are the famous series of interviews he gave to David Frost uh, just after leaving the White House. Uh, Very poignant question at the end when he was asked uh, about his reflections on the uh, aftermath and impact of Watergate. This is a brief clip. Let's listen.
2: I let down my friends. I let down the country. I let down our system of government and the dreams of all those young people that ought to get into government but will think it's all too corrupt and the rest. Yep, I, I... I let the American people down. And I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life.
0: So Jim Byron, how is Watergate portrayed in the new revamped Nixon Library?
1: Well, obviously Watergate was a, a crime of consequence that would define a scandal uh, that have has repercussions today that we're still... Uh, experiencing political repercussions, legal repercussions, and we're still learning a lot about Watergate, particularly over the last couple of years. There's been a number of uh, uh, new revelations uh, regarding the Watergate special prosecutor's files. Um, You know, so uh, as we approach the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, the story of Watergate isn't over. It it remains endlessly fascinating, and, uh, you know, I, I think that the what it's revealing is that there is this, this, this great thirst for a, a, a fuller understanding of, of President Nixon. You know, like I said earlier, there's 17 books in the works right now uh, about President Nixon. Um, there's 3,600 hours of the famous Nixon White House tapes. Uh, every tape, that, or pretty much every tape that is out right now uh, is going to be it. There aren't very many other tapes that are, that are going to be coming out about 5% of those 3,600 hours have to do with Watergate. And a lot of the requests that I'm hearing from uh, historians that, that they're getting about the tapes have nothing to do with Watergate. So, you know, there really is this thirst for a deeper understanding of, uh, of President Nixon. And, and if you take the Watergate gallery uh, in the library, you know, it's, it's put alongside uh, a larger story. It's a key part of a larger story and uh you know it, it it is the largest gallery devoted to a single subject as it was in 1990 when the nixon library opened uh and and you know visitors can come and and they can learn about what happened and they can uh, they can contextualize it you'll uh, see at the nixon library that when you uh, when, when visitors go through the watergate gallery they then start to learn about president nixon's early life And so what we've uh, tried to do there is uh, communicate to visitors that, at one of the most difficult periods in our country's history, and at a difficult period for President Nixon personally, it's very important to understand who he was as a man. And so when you round that corner coming out of the Watergate exhibit, you look out these enormous windows uh, at the birthplace home, the home that his father built, in which he was born and learn about his family and his early life in Yorba Linda and Whittier, and, uh, you know, really realized that, that this was a man who was a visionary leader, uh, who was committed to uh, public service, who had bipartisan achievements, and uh, who uh, was, was really a, a, the, the world and the nation's preeminent geopolitical grand strategist. You know, in, in that clip that you showed, he said uh, that he let down a, a number of young people uh, who, who may have wanted to go into government. Well, there were a number of young people who he brought into government who went on to enjoy wildly successful careers, uh, and, and many of them are, are, remain uh, personally bound to, uh, to President Nixon. They are legatees of the Nixon administration. Many of them have, have told me uh, told me that UN Ambassador George H.W. Bush started in the Nixon administration. Uh, Colin Powell was a White House fellow in the Nixon administration. George Shultz, uh, Alan Greenspan was in the 1968 campaign, uh, business titan, Fred Malick, who went on to become president of Marriott and the uh, president of Northwest Airlines, co-chairman of CVRE, uh, Barbara Franklin, Bobby Kilberg, Paul O'Neill, Henry Kissinger. Uh, uh, President-elect Nixon pulled Henry Kissinger from the Rockefeller staff and brought him in as national security advisor. Today, he's arguably the world's preeminent uh, international statesman. So, I mean, th- th- there were good people that served in the Nixon administration who uh, got their start there that, uh, that, that went on to achieve great things.
0: Do you uh, believe that no matter how many efforts you make at it, there are some people for whom Watergate will be the defining moment of the presidency and Trump's other accomplishments?
1: Probably, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it's an important element of a much larger story. And if we can tell that uh, that much larger story, as Bill Clinton said when he eulogized uh, President Nixon in 1994 at a state funeral right here at the Library in Yorba Linda, uh, he said, "May the day of judging President Nixon on anything less than his entire life and career come to a close." That was 25 years ago, and I would argue that that's only beginning to happen now. Over the last three or four years, the last few years, um, and frankly, I'm I'm excited because. And I'm excited about this role because I think that history is only beginning to appreciate President Nixon more fully now.
0: You referenced domestic po- policy achievements. Uh, I wanted to play a clip, brief clip, of Tricia Nixon Cox talking about some of President Nixon's domestic policies. In a turbulent time, peace in the world and justice at home were the twin pillars of my father's initiatives. Initiatives that integrated all Americans into the promise of the American dream. And initiatives that preserved our water, air, and land. And initiatives that were ahead of their time in welfare and health care. During his five and a half years as president, Richard Nixon deregulated telecommunications. As you referenced, he created the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, OSHA, Occupational Safety um, and Health Administration. He signed the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act. I'm wondering whether or not Richard Nixon would be considered a conservative by today's political standards.
1: Well, probably not. Uh, and, and I think, uh, I don't think he was a conservative then. Uh, you know, Evan Thomas, the former editor of Newsweek, says in a video here that greets every visitor at the Nixon Library, he said Nixon was conservative in many ways, but he was an activist. And I think that sums it up. You know, as Tricia said, and said so eloquently, uh, he created the EPA. He started, or was was a key part of, uh, at the very least, the modern environmental movement. Uh, He signed Title IX. Uh, He created the uh, just landmark uh, cancer legislation that that paved the way for uh, incredible advances in research and technology, at yesterday's Nixon National Cancer Conference, uh, Dr. Stephen Hahn, formerly of the FDA, now uh, with Moderna, drew a direct line from Richard Nixon's National Cancer Act 50 years ago to the development of mRNA technology that is the bedrock of today's COVID-19 vaccines. To say that, that President Nixon was a, uh, a, an accomplished president in the foreign policy field, you can say that. You also have to say that he was enormously, uh, an, an enormously accomplished president in the domestic policy field, uh, because many of his, of his uh, domestic achievements really stand the test of time.
0: But they are very different than the direction of the, con- the contemporary Republican Party. And I'm wondering where that puts the Nixon Foundation's programs uh, ideologically, given the direction of the Republican Party, and where you see common ground with the direction the party is going today.
1: Uh, I'll I'll leave the the comparisons to the party today to the the historians, but uh, I'll say that in terms of the foundation's programming, um, we are all about emphasizing that President Nixon was uh, uh, operated in a a bipartisan spirit in working with Congress and has real bipartisan achievements to show for it. Uh, President Nixon was the first president to come into office since Zachary Taylor, with both houses of Congress against him, uh, controlled by the opposite party. And yet, he was able to uh, create the EPA, uh, sign Title IX, create OSHA, uh, pave the way for a, a new relationship between American Indians and the US federal government. He restored tribal lands uh, to, to, uh, to American Indians, uh, particularly those in, in, uh, in Taos Blue Lake. Um, he he uh, revolutionized cancer treatment and research. So, you know, he, he, he was, I would argue, not a conservative. Uh, I would argue that he, that he really wasn't a liberal either. It, it was pragmatic, moderate, uh, moderation. And, uh, you know, so if that puts him in, in a, in a, you know, sort of no man's land with, uh, with today's, uh, Republican party, I don't know if it does or doesn't, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, that that is a record to be proud of, and, and that's what we ought to be uh, emphasizing and, uh, and pushing forward from an educational perspective.
0: You mentioned his detente with the Soviet Union and his opening of China in 1972. You've got an ongoing series of programs that, in the foundation, the Nixon Seminar, and its goals seem to be to explore a philosophy called conservative realism. Can you tell me what that means in the context of his accomplishments?
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, President Nixon was the ultimate uh, realist. That was how he uh, and, and set foreign policy and how he and Dr. Kissinger, uh, you know, really operated on, on a geopolitical uh, scale. As I mentioned earlier, you know, he really is America's preeminent geopolitical grand strategist. And they did this all from a philosophy that's rooted in realism. So, uh, you know, what the Nixon seminars do, or, or what they are intended to do is to provide a pathway for uh, the Republican Party today to and, and the Democratic Party today to uh, to say you know this is what worked then here are a set of policy prescriptions that may work that we would recommend would work now uh, and, and it's not the foundation necessarily recommending it it's it's the members of the seminar uh, the seminar is co-chaired by uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and and former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, and and has uh, 15 members from the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations' national security uh, experts. And uh, you know, really, they w- we set the topic working with uh, working with the moderator, and uh, we say, you know, President Nixon did it this way. And here's how we'd recommend that it be done today. Uh, you know, so it, it it's meant to uh, guide and recommend and advise, and so it it's become in a sense one of our uh, many uh, key educational programs that we hope uh, members of uh, th- this administration and whatever the next administration is, uh, it might be the same administration uh, and and members of Congress. Uh, you know, can can key off of in, as they're formulating key uh, foreign policy uh, prescriptions and, and agendas.
0: On a lighter note, we have about four minutes left. Oh, you uh, recently opened an exhibit of correspondence between Richard Nixon as an ex-president and Donald Trump. Can you tell me about the letters that you found and what one learns about the two men from them?
1: They were, uh, I mean, just what amazing finds. We uh, discovered these Letters We uncovered them, you know, anybody who goes searching through the archives knows that it's like you you can find a needle in a haystack and we found a few needles in in these haystacks and so we pieced these letters together. What we uh, were able to determine was that former President Nixon and then New York City businessman Donald Trump had a friendship, they had a uh, they had a relationship, they knew each other, at least socially, and they would bounce ideas off of one another from everything from football to the legacy of the Vietnam War. Uh, politics today—it it, it is absolutely fascinating to have read uh, to, to read this, the correspondence between these two men and to have presented that. Uh, we put that into a special exhibit at the Nixon Library, which unfortunately is uh, now no longer open. Um, but uh, it was called the Presidents' Club. And it took a look at relationships between series uh, of presidents over uh, over the last uh, nearly 250 years with the Nixon-Trump letters, really breaking new ground. Uh, that you have to historians now have to uh, wrestle with uh, the fact that these two men had a relationship, and how does that factor in to uh, you know historians' understanding of these two men? I'll leave that up to them. But uh, you know, we we presented some really interesting and compelling new history.
0: Have you opened the doors to the public again?
1: We have, thankfully. Uh, last uh, well earlier in in May, we reopened after 14 very long months, and uh, we sure hope that we stay open uh, long into the future.
0: What's the traffic been like?
1: You know, like many other museums, it's not where we really uh, would like it to be. I've talked to peers in the museum community, uh, the Getty, the Huntington Library, the Reagan Library, um, and everyone is seeing, you know, it's, it's it's a little bit slower. A lot of that, we believe, is due to the fact that uh, international travel just has not picked up. As I mentioned before, you know, prior to COVID, we were one of the top destinations of, in Southern California for folks visiting from Asia, China and Japan. Um, right now, it's it's a slow trickle. But, you know, we believe that we will be back and we, we have a lot uh, for the public to come and see. We have a lot to offer. We have a new special exhibit right now all on uh, the National Cancer Act. And if you have questions about cancer, we encourage you to come to the Nixon Library. It's a great place to learn.
0: Jim Byron, 28 years old and the new CEO as of a month ago of the Nixon Foundation with the goal of of connecting with millennials. Thank you very much for spending the last hour with C-SPAN to tell us about your job, your goals, your direction, and the holdings of the library. We appreciate your time.
1: Thank you, Susan, and thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.